Russia's propaganda and Putin's ambitions. There's an expression in Russian. На войне, как на войне. And you can translate this by actually lifting a line from Shakespeare, from King Lear. And the line is, to be tender-hearted does not become a sword. China's messaging on the conflict in Ukraine. What we found was that Chinese diplomats firmly placed the blame for Russia's invasion of a sovereign country on familiar targets. This is Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. This week marked 100 days since Russia invaded Ukraine. The invasion came as a surprise to many, but looking back over Putin's actions during the last 20 years of his rule, this is something we should have seen coming, argues our first guest, Kyle Wilson. Anastasia Capetta speaks to Kyle about Russia's history, propaganda, and the evolution of Putinism. Today we're going to be talking about Russia, really looking at these hundred days of war. And joining me today, I have Kyle Wilson. His expertise on all things Russian is very well known. First of all, we really wanted to talk about what have we learned from this particular war? What have we learned about Putin, what have we learned about Russia under Putin in this war that we have failed to learn in the preceding 20 years of his rule in Russia? Well, thanks, Anastasia. There immediately comes to mind a line from an American singer-songwriter duo, Simon and Garfunkel, and they have a remarkable song, I think popular to this day, called The Boxer, which contains the axiomatic line a man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest. And if you look back at the 22 years that we've had of Putin ruling Russia, it seems to me that idea that we hear what we want to hear and disregard the rest is one of the key lessons that we would, that we would take away from what has happened over those 22 years and what has not happened. I would sum it up by saying there's been a kind of stubborn and irrational refusal to perceive and to draw conclusions from clear signs that we had fairly early on. What were some of those very um, clear that, signs? You know, that, that really he, the, the Russian military writer Alexander Goltz has said that since the time of Peter the Great, Russia has been a highly militarised empire in which power is concentrated in the hands of one person and that Putin really exemplifies and he embodies that tradition. I mean, all power is concentrated in his hands, number one. Number two, when Putin by sheer chance met the then Australian Foreign Minister Gareth Evans in mid-November 1991, quite by chance he encountered Putin and he asked Putin Mr. Putin, who are you? And Putin said, I'm a military man. But with a little bit of literary license, you can interpret that as, I'm a man of war. And Putin has certainly shown himself to be a man of war. Very important here to remember that the Russian intelligence services are militarized, unlike ours. They wear uniforms. They can bear arms. So... This is what he said in 1991, but from quite early on in his reign, let's call it his reign, we had clear signals. 
In 2005, Putin established a historical commission to rewrite Russian textbooks, to rewrite Russian history. That historical commission produced a textbook for history teachers, a guide or a primer for history teachers. It was headed by a man called Filipov. And in that book was the remarkable paragraph that said, most of the Russian politically conscious class rejects the present boundaries of the Russian Federation. They are inadequate to protect Russia's security. That's 2005. 2008, we have the Georgian War. Without any mediation, Putin makes war and grabs territory. By the way, that territory continues to be grabbed because the Russians are very gradually moving their barbed wire further and further into Georgia. In 2014, Anders Fogh who is then the Secretary General of NATO, after all the trouble in Ukraine, he goes to Moscow and says to Mr. Putin, Mr. Putin, I've come with a package of proposals to reform Russian-NATO relations. And Putin says to him on camera, I don't want to reform Russian-NATO relations. I want NATO abolished. Okay, 2014, a very senior Russian commentator, Lukyanov, says... Putin is not so silly as to think that he can recreate the Soviet Union. But there is a core of the former Soviet Union that is properly ours. Belarus, Ukraine and northern Kazakhstan. And it would be nice to have it back. That was said in 2014. 2018, Putin uh, unveiling this really rather frightening array of new doomsday weapons, including a nuclear-armed torpedo, says... You didn't listen to us. Look at these weapons and listen to us now. Along with that, we had about a decade of of really lurid and strident propaganda. 24-7 on Russian television, directed against the West. By the way, directed also against Australia. And the message of all that propaganda was summed up very well by a Financial Times correspondent called Charles Clover, and it's this. Russia is unique. Russia is different. Russia is superior. Russia is under attack. Russia must defend itself. That was the gist of what Russians heard from their state television, and all television became state television over years and years. And part of all this propaganda was this notion that Ukraine is not a country and Ukraine is not a people. Putin said that very early on to George Bush. Again, we didn't listen. So the barrage of propaganda, trying to transform the way the Russian population actually thought And together with this went the remilitarization of Russia. Let's go back to what Putin said, I'm a military man. The Soviet Union was highly militarized. All university students had to do military service. Colossal part of the Russian, of the Soviet budget was devoted to arms. Under Putin, about one third of all the revenue that Russia receives has been devoted to what he calls security. That is, the military Military receives one in five of all rubles of revenue. But the security services, including the National Guard, 350,000 strong riot police, receives also a ruble. Essentially, three out of every five rubles going to control. An army to smite your foreign enemies, a domestic army to smite the traitors, the fifth column within. So all this is bound up to with the notion of, of Russian imperialism, that Russia's role, and if you look at Russia historically, Russia has been an imperial power which has moved outwards from Moscow. 
over about 400 years. The, the American historian Stephen Kotkin has calculated that over about 450 years, Russia expanded outward at a rate of between 100 and 150 square kilometres per day and engulfed 184 different nationalities or ethnic groups. And that expansion continues because Russia now claims half of the Arctic. And so essentially Putin is reclaiming what he considers to be Russia's right. Remember what Lukyanov said? Ukraine is rightfully ours. And so that is what Putin has been doing. And this brings us to this Putinist notion of Ruskimir, the Russian world. And this is a notion that wherever you are, no matter where you may be, you might be in Greece, you might be in Ecuador, you might be in Antarctica, or you might be in Canberra. But if you are Russian, or born of Russian parents, or identify with Russia, you are essentially Russian. You are part of the Russian world, and your fealty and your loyalty lies with the Kremlin. Can I just ask as well, does that extend to all Orthodox peoples? No, not that's not correct. What you can say is that in trying to actually implement this notion of Ruskimir, of recruiting and mobilising all people in support of Putin's policies throughout the world, the Kremlin has paid particular attention, particular attention to Greece and Cyprus as, I guess you would say, possibly fecund sources of strong support for the Kremlin because of a natural identification through orthodoxy with Russia, with, that is, with Byzantium Russia, Byzantine Russia. But look, I wanted to mention, apart from Ruskimir, another very important aspect of all this, and this is what we're seeing played out in Ukraine. This is what I would call the Russian way of war. There's an expression in Russian. На войне, как на войне. And you can translate this by actually lifting a line from Shakespeare, from King Lear. And the line is, to be tender-hearted does not become a sword. And the second possible translation would be, whatever it takes. And what are we seeing today in Ukraine? The slaughter of civilians, the bombing of hospitals, the bombing of schools, the bombing of museums and libraries to erase all Ukrainian claims that they have a separate culture. So there's a, an awful historical continuity here in the way in which Putin is going about either making Ukraine again part of the Russian Empire or trashing Ukraine. If I can't have it, no one can no have one can. it. Before we go on, Carl, can I also ask you this? One of the reasons why a lot of Western analysts thought that Russia wasn't a particular threat anymore is because they looked at Russia's economy, for example. It is, you know, it is not a great power economy and getting worse. It's not a diversified economy. It depends on oil and gas, which will probably eventually recede from economic importance as we transition to renewable energy. And also things like demographics, Russia's ageing population the fact that Putin has no successor, these were all reasons given for why we didn't really need to worry about Russia. What would you say to those arguments? I would say that those arguments are cognate with the notion I tried to set out initially of a failure to see what is before your very eyes. If you like, wishful thinking and myopia, 
we don't need to worry about Russia because it has a second-rate economy, as you said. To me, these are myths. First of all, you have the application to Russia of concepts of the health of an economy, which I would argue, being a non-economist, but someone who's, like all of us, had to try to learn about economics, I think it's wrong to define the health of an economy in terms of annual GDP growth and GDP growth per capita. Against that, you have to set the fact that Russia occupies about between a fifth and the sixth of the world's land surface, that according to BHP Billiton, Russia sits on between 5 and 25% of almost everything on the planet, with three exceptions, uranium, bauxite, and rare earths. Lake Baikal contains one-sixth of the world's fresh water. The fact is, in our lifetime, oil and gas are going to remain very important and very rich sources of revenue for Russia no matter who is in power. Yes, eventually they will be displaced, but as Maynard Keynes said, by then we'll all be dead. Well, I will be. Then we get to the demographics. The same point applies. Well, first of all, Putin has improved somewhat the demographics. The most remarkable thing about Russian demographics, two remarkable things. First of all, it's the difference in longevity between men and women. It's something like 12 years because women don't abuse substances especially alcohol. Okay. Then, of course, there's the decline in the average number of people of working age. So the Russian workforce is declining. But that decline has been more than compensated for by migration from Central Asia. So the demographic argument doesn't work for 30 or 40 years. The economic argument, I think, is a false argument. It is dangerously self-delusionary to argue that Russia has a weak economy. Yes, there are profound weaknesses. The greatest weakness of all, well, two great weaknesses. One, corruption. All countries are corrupt to a greater or lesser degree. But in Russia, corruption defeats the English language. I'll give an example. Big foreign firms ignore Russian university degrees as evidence of the talent or competence of someone who is seeking a job with that firm because Russian university degrees can be bought. Two million dollars buys you a doctorate with the doctorate signed by the chancellor, the vice-chancellor, of Russia's most prestigious university. I mean, that's the degree of corruption. We've seen this in Ukraine, with you know, tanks departing from Ukraine with people's washing machines and hot water boilers strapped to the top of them. So there's the corruption, and together with the corruption, goes the oppressive political atmosphere which causes Russia's brain drain. Now, that's very important. In 2013, I think it was, the man who was considered to be Russia's most talented economist, Sergei Guriev, was at work. He was the rector of the High School of Economics. One day, the KGB's successor, the FSB, turned up and seized his hard drive. He was a young man, brilliant economist. He went straight to the airport and got on a plane to Paris where his wife was a professor of economics at a French university. That brain drain today is acute. We don't know what numbers have actually left Russia. It's certainly in the tens of thousands, possibly the hundreds of thousands. And these are some of the very best. This is going to have, of course, a profound effect on the Russian economy 
eventually. But that's where the weakness lies. I don't think the weakness lies in an excessive dependence on hydrocarbons and minerals because you could say the same about Australia. Look, I wanted to say just something about the war in Ukraine. It seems to me that if I were Vladimir Putin, I would not be dissatisfied with what I have achieved in Ukraine. Yes, the losses have been far higher than expected. The losses in terms of both manpower and materiel, undoubtedly. Yes, the attempt to take Kiev was a notable failure. But essentially, it seems to me, if you look at how Putin would define winning, I think he would define it in the following terms. If I can't have Ukraine, if Ukraine can't be reintegrated back into the Russian Empire, then no one will have it, and I will make it a desert. And Ukraine today, because of the Black Sea naval blockade, and because of attacks on its infrastructure, with Russian missiles in particular, is not a viable nation-state. 70% of Ukraine's exports go via the Black Sea. They are a marine trading nation, rather as Australia is a marine trading nation. Imagine if Australia, hard to imagine, suffered a naval blockade and we could not export, send our exports through, say, the South China Sea. Imagine the effect on us. Well, it seems to me you can argue reasonably that unless the naval blockade imposed by the Russians on the Black Sea, unless Ukraine can return to sowing and harvesting the agricultural produce on which it so strongly relies, then Ukraine is not a viable nation-state. So that seems to me to be a very important thing to say. The second important thing to say is that, as the Ukrainians rightly perceived, there would be limits to especially EU support for Ukraine. It's failing. If you look at those who really are supporting Ukraine consistently now, it's a relatively small number of countries. The United States, the UK, some members of the EU, and especially Ukraine's Baltic and Nordic neighbours. But once you leave Europe, and if you like what you might call AUKUS+, plus, then as soon as you go east from Ukraine, no support. The old third world, as it were, you know, the West and the rest, the rest does not apparently have much sympathy or support for Ukraine. Presumably their view is, well, you know, the Russians were not our colonial oppressor. Yes, it's sad what's happening in Ukraine, but really it's none of our business. So this, it seems to me, is a very significant problem for the Ukrainians. And so in the short to medium term, the cohesion the strength of support, sustaining support for Ukraine in terms of arms supplies and helping it somehow get through as a viable economy, presumably via a Marshall Plan, are going to be absolutely crucial. Well, these are the things that Russian television propagandists have been saying over the last month or so, especially with increasing kind of velocity, which is this, it's a narrow slice of the world. First of all, secondly, that democratic nations don't have the stomach for the kind of warfare, the Russian way of war. Russia, as part of its exceptionalism and its, its destiny, has an ability to suffer in a prolonged way that Western countries simply don't have. Exactly so. As you say, that's a, a main message, a seminal message that's been coming through in the Russian propaganda. Well... It seems to me that you've encapsulated the problem because that is what's being tested. Will that be so? What degree of pain 
will the Russian populace be willing to accept to have Ukraine reintegrated? One of the arguments about the collapse of the Soviet Union, the Cold War, was that the defeat in Afghanistan of Russian arms, the humiliation of Russian arms in Afghanistan, officially the loss of 14,000 Russian war dead, multiply that by three for young men whose lives would have been wrecked by severe injury, you'll come up with about 60 or 70,000. And so the argument goes that this was a very important factor in the downfall of the Soviet Union. Well, maybe, maybe not. The fact is, we don't know, number one, what losses the Russians are sustaining. Zelensky is on the record now as having said that he is losing between 50 and 100 soldiers a day. Let's realistically take the upper end of that figure. 100 soldiers a day, 700 soldiers a week, 3,000 soldiers a month. That's not to count civilians. Let's imagine the Russians are losing a like number. That's 6,000 deaths per month. How long can that be sustained? We don't know. History tells us that Russian rulers are completely indifferent to the suffering of the Russian populace in the name of the glorious mission of the Russian Empire. Will that be so? We don't know. What is the degree of popular support for Putin's policies within Russia? Again, we don't know. We know that tens of thousands of people, possibly hundreds of thousands of people, have voted with their feet. They've gone to Istanbul, to Athens. But we just don't know. But you're absolutely right. This is now going to be tested. In other words, what is the capacity of the Russians to sustain the war effort? And there's an important question here about their armaments industry. We're learning now that Russian arms are significantly dependent on foreign-sourced, absolutely crucial components, like semiconductors. What will they do about that? We, we don't know. And then there's the Ukrainians. How long can they sustain this effort? How long will enough Western-sourced aid reach them? We just don't know. What I think we can say, and it seems to me that there's a reasonable consensus here, is that this really is a crucial test of the staying power, the resilience, and if you like, the willpower of democracies to correctly identify and protect their own interests. Kyle, that seems to be a good note on which to end this look back at Russian history, Russian propaganda, Russian mythology and how it, it has developed under Putinism and reached a quite a horrible phase in this particular war. Thank you very much, Kyle. It's a pleasure, Anastasia. Thank you. Shifting focus to the information environment, Dr Jacob Wallace and Dr Samantha Hoffman discussed China's diplomatic messaging on the conflict in Ukraine. They consider the messaging by China's diplomats and Chinese state media at different stages of the conflict, something they explored in their recent report. It's my pleasure to be joined by Dr. Samantha Hoffman, and we are going to have a conversation around China's messaging on the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Now, we were very keen, particularly as the uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine was kicking off, to explore and understand how the Chinese government was positioning itself in relation to the conflict. So we geared up a very agile data analytics capability to track 
the messaging from Chinese diplomats and state media for the early period of the conflict, through the first couple of weeks of the conflict, in fact. We collected something like 11,500 tweets and 2,500 Facebook posts from Chinese diplomats across 21 different languages. We also undertook qualitative analysis of the coverage of the conflict from, from Chinese state media. So we were very keen to try and draw out some themes in terms of how the Chinese government was presenting its position, its stance in relation to Russia's invasion of a sovereign country and how it articulated its own position to this invasion, particularly given that we know there is tension around Taiwan and this issue of sovereignty is quite a delicate one for the Chinese Communist Party to articulate to the international community. What we found was that Chinese diplomats firmly placed the blame for Russia's invasion of a sovereign country on familiar targets, the US in particular, but also NATO and China's diplomats were quick to associate the invasion with NATO expansionism. They were quite clear that NATO's expansion eastwards was in part responsible for Russia's legitimate security concerns, and I'm doing air quotes here for our, for our listeners. They also, particularly in Chinese state media, used the Kremlin's language to describe the incursion. So the specific language that, that Putin and the Kremlin has used, like special military operation, special operation. That was the kind of language that Chinese state media was using. The other familiar trope in the messaging from China's diplomats was to present the US as warmongering. So to really push hard on this idea of the US military industrial complex as a driver of international conflict. The other feature that we found to be particularly significant was that as the West came together collectively, Western democratic governments came together collectively to curtail the reach of Russian disinformation on particularly Silicon Valley social media platforms. China, in fact, opened the door to that propaganda and became a vehicle for the Kremlin's disinformation. So we saw Chinese diplomats propagating Russian disinformation around the presence of US biolabs in Ukraine. China's diplomats continue to associate NATO and the Ukrainian government with neo-Nazis, which is a long-running strand of Russian disinformation targeting the Ukrainian government. The other really significant feature, and perhaps this might again be related to the sensitivity around Taiwan, was that Chinese state media, particularly in, in the early days of the conflict, had a kind of aversion to depicting the, the human cost of Russia's invasion. Now, what I think is interesting in this messaging is that whilst it's framed around a particular event of international significance, there are themes here that are kind of long-standing perennial issues for the Chinese Communist Party. And it's notable that the Chinese Communist Party attempts to take opportunity from crisis. And if we were to analyze some of those narratives and themes a little deeper, perhaps we could identify ways in which they've done so 
And my colleague Sam has delved into those themes for us to provide that additional context. What did you find, Sam? So initially, when your team approached me about this project, I think my initial comment was is that I expected that before looking at the data that you would probably find that China wasn't reacting to the events in Ukraine in isolation and that any messaging would probably be linked to themes that you regularly see in your work around China's messaging strategies. And so independently, I think when Ingram was going through this data and pulled out the themes, once he was able to show those to me, they actually aligned pretty directly with what I thought he might see, which I thought was telling, because it, it does illustrate that even though we have a, a somewhat a current event and something new taking place, that actually the way that China thinks about threats and tries to react to and preemptively respond to threat isn't changing over quite a long period of time. I think in our conversations, I talked a little bit about how China's reaction to the color revolutions and the jasmine revolution are often cited examples, for instance, that China uses when it's thinking about crisis and, and potential crisis response. And you sort of see that playing through its its narrative around this crisis. If you think about the themes that were identified, say, on sanctions and anti-China disinformation, those aren't new themes. <laughs> but I think they help to, in a way, what you see China's messaging doing in this crisis is it helps to advance the rationale for particular policies that you're seeing evolve, partly in an attempt to mitigate threat. So something like sanctions and China's digital currency and the rationale for de developing DCEP in China. You can also sort of see this around the narrative about bioweapons and trying to deflect responsibility for early mismanagement of COVID-19. So there are a lot of themes here that are somehow present already in Chinese information campaigns that the events around the Ukraine crisis are facilitating that, that messaging or just adding a new, a new rationale for China in a way. And I think what's interesting is the longevity of these themes and how they could be applied to other contexts. So obviously, given our positioning in the world, we're particularly interested in events in the, the Indo-Pacific region where we don't have an Asian NATO, but we have an emerging security architecture that is designed to balance China's assertive posturing in the region. There are different elements of that emerging security architecture, like the Quad and AUKUS, that have themselves been a feature of similar messaging around the potential for Western security blocks to disrupt the security of the region in ways that have the potential to lead to conflict. And that's certainly been a feature of China's messaging around those two diplomatic initiatives. And I think that where we analyse China's disinformation in particular, it's really important that we take that longer term view about what the Chinese Communist Party's longer term strategic objectives are and how particular events, how particular moments in time offer insights into the longer term strategy that the Chinese Communist Party is putting into play. Yeah, and I think it's also important, you know, perhaps a, somewhat of a, a side note, but it's also important to make sure that we understand that we don't necessarily know the impact of these campaigns right away. And in the same way that China's been able to create ambiguity about Taiwan's status over the years, it's potentially able to create, you know, a sort of a different alternative version of the truth uh, with its information campaigns as well. That can be quite successful, even if on the surface it, it looks 
like some of the claims are outlandish or unbelievable. I think it's hard for us to know what the success will be long term. And, you know, the other point would be to think about these information operations in the context of other Chinese activity to shape global opinion. And not all of that is taking place on social media. You have a number of different ways that propaganda plays out and attempts to influence public opinion globally play out. So this is just a small window of what actually is happening or, or taking place. That's right. There are a number of different elements of this within this suite of kind of assertive, sharp statecraft and disinformation is one yeah. strand, but we need to contextualize that within, yeah. with the, within the context of the other levers of power projection that the Chinese Communist Party has at its disposal. Exactly. Sam, thank you for sharing your insights. Thank you. That's a wrap on this episode. This week you had conversations with Anastasia Capetis, National Security Editor of The Strategist, and Carl Wilson, Visiting Fellow at the ANU Centre for European Studies, Dr. Samantha Hoffman, Senior Analyst, and Dr. Jacob Wallace, Head of Information Operations and Disinformation at ASPE. Thanks for listening to Policy, Guns and Money. We'll be back with another episode soon.